Okay, today we start week number seven in our study of the book of the Revelation in our sermon series entitled Game Over, and the final score is... We've made it through the Apostle John's seven letters to the seven churches. And I want to remind you, we've studied them from the perspective of what they say to us today and how God intends them to be used as preparation in us, in the church, for tomorrow. They're not just history books written almost 2,000 years ago to a church way back when. They have this amazing ability to speak to us today, to talk about what's coming in the days ahead as the clock ticks down towards the end of the age, as the world awaits the greatest moment there will ever be, the second coming of Christ as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Those seven letters to those seven churches speak to us about what readiness, what preparation in us, both individually and corporately, should look like. Well, we've gone through those, and it's time to shift gears. Are you ready? First of all, I want you to know that I didn't say it's time to go a different direction. In, in shifting gears, we're not going a different direction. Yeah, yeah, we turn a corner, but it's not to a, a different destination. This amazing book, and it is an amazing book, is all about redemption and judgment, the cosmic battle between good and evil, and it's laced with great hope and great blessing. Whether you read it verse by verse, chapter by chapter, beginning to end, it is a hope-filled book because in the end, we win. And what we've looked at so far is preparation for that victory because it takes great preparation to assure the victory comes in fullness and its completion. Notice also, when I said it's time to shift gears, that doesn't mean it's time to go faster. Uh, yes, obviously, we join our prayers to the prayers the church have prayed throughout the century in response to Jesus at the end of the revelation saying, yes, I'm coming quickly. We say, we pray, amen, come Lord Jesus. But let's be prepared for the road ahead and for what it may hold. Let's, let's enjoy the ride as, as best we can and let's be sure that we're on the right road. As, as the pilot of this church, this vehicle, the, the last thing I hope you'd ever hear me say is, you know, folks, I've got some good news and some bad news. Good news is we're making great time, we're way ahead of schedule, but the bad news is we're completely lost. We have no idea where we are or where we're heading. Uh, that would be a nightmare for me to ever say if I were piloting a ship. I don't want to say that about the study of this book either. And so we're going to continue to take our time. We're not going to rush through what this book has to say to us. But I want to promise you that you will not get bored, not when you see what's coming. So, if you would stand, please, as we have each week. Um, this week, to change it up a little bit, we're going to read the scripture that we're going to cover together in unison. Rather than having a reader, we're all going to read it together. So you can follow along with the PowerPoint that is on the screen behind me. After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. You may be seated. That's it for today. Some of you are probably doing the math in your heads, aren't you? You're saying, PK, you just moved from 400 weeks in this study. This is going to take seven years or more. Oh, no, it's the Great Tribulation. The Bible talked about, relax, relax. It's not going to take us seven years. I just really need this morning to lay some groundwork for the rest of the book. So today I want to talk about this topic. When will the rapture occur? When will the rapture occur? 
Now, if you're sitting here listening to this saying, the, the what? That's okay. And just let me explain a couple things to you. Mm -hmm. The word rapture comes from the Latin word rapere, that means caught up. And the Bible says that when Jesus returns, at some point, believers will be caught up to meet him in the air. Now, that, that picture I'm showing is probably the worst picture I could ever find of what the rapture might look like. I showed it to Steph, and she laughed out loud when she saw it. So I'm betting it's not going to look anything like that or happen anything like that picture would convey. But the rapture is a very real thing. And the idea for the rapture comes from a scripture in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I want to read for you verses 16 through 18 there. It says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up. There's that word, rapture. Caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Again, that's 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 through 18. Okay, so get in groups of three to five. And in your group, I want you to guess the date, the actual date when Jesus' second coming will be, and the group that guesses closest will win a big prize, okay? <laughs> no way. No, no, I'm kidding. We're, we're never going to do that, okay? Yeah, that's exactly why. Because Jesus said in Matthew 24, 36, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, only the Father alone. So why would we dare to think that we could predict it or we could guess the date or be the closest to the date and win some kind of prize? But I do want you to understand this. When Jesus spoke those words, no one knows the day or the hour that the Son will return, he made that statement in response to a question that he was asked earlier in Matthew chapter 24. In the third verse, Jesus was asked, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And so while he clearly said no one can know exactly when that is, he spent two full chapters in Matthew, one in Mark and one in Luke, talking about these signs, talking about the things that we should watch for as a part of one's personal, not only watchfulness, but also preparation for his return. So, yeah, we can't put a precise time on his second coming. But I believe it's crystal clear. We should study the revelation as well as other supporting scripture and other prophetic passages of scripture to attempt to determine a framework that it would give us to help understand the signs of the times that Jesus and the prophets spoke about. We need to be ready, not to the hour and the day, but personal preparation for that great day that's coming. The main reason why we only read one verse today is because there's a group of scholars who believe that Revelation 4.1, and that is the scripture we all stood and read together, that it's speaking about the rapture of the church, and they believe it's one of the key indicators as to when the rapture will take place. Let me read it for you again. This is Revelation 4.1. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. They, those scholars believe that that is a type or a picture of the church being in heaven at this point in time, 
come up here, the church removed from the earth, going to heaven. Later on in that chapter, in the fourth fourth verse of Revelation 4, it says, Around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. They believe that that also is a type and a pattern, a picture of church leadership being in heaven at this time. And if the church leaders are there, it stands to reason to these who believe that um, the church will be there also. The one other point with regards to the book of the Revelation is this. They believe that there is no further mention of the church in the rest of the book until chapter 19 when Jesus comes again at the second coming. And so putting those three thoughts together, this is a group of scholars who believe in what's called a pre-tribulation rapture. In other words, the rapture will take place before the great tribulation, before things really, really get bad here on the earth, just before Christ's second coming. Three main beliefs about the rapture. There are pre-tribulation rapture people, thinking that we're raptured before the tribulation. Mid-tribulation, who believe the rapture will take some place during those seven years, probably right in the middle of it, at three and a half years. And then a group that are post-tribulation rapturists, who believe the church will be here through these difficult days. Um, again, a matter of definition, the word tribulation simply means distress or suffering resulting from oppression or persecution. In general, it's a, a trying experience. And the book of the Revelation speaks extensively about tribulation and something called the Great Tribulation. And as I said, it's something that will last for seven years. The big question that we want to look at today is, will Jesus come back for us before, during, or after this Great Tribulation? How many vote for... No, I won't ask that question either because um, who wouldn't vote for a pre-tribulation rapture? But here's the issue. We don't elect a president. We don't get to vote. We serve a king. And the king determines how things will unfold, when certain things must take place. And we are just here to serve him and to obey him. My goodness, if we got to vote on when the rapture took place... Who in their right mind wouldn't vote for a pre-tribulation rapture? Why would we want to be here when things really, really get tough? Now, I want to say this before we go any further. I'm going to share with you today about the pre-tribulation rapture view and what those scholars believe. Um, It's not the view that I subscribe to, but there are minds far more brilliant than me, and I know that's obvious. But there are also very brilliant minds on each and every side of this issue. And they have very different perspectives and opinions from one another. And each group uses a lot of scripture to back up their point of view. So while I tend to land in one of these three camps, uh, I want to be wide open and hold loosely to what I believe and ask you to do the same. You, You can disagree with... What you hear today and in the next couple weeks, you can disagree with me. That's fine. Let's just agree to be loving and kind, okay? And let's agree where we can. Let's try and and live that out. One thing we can agree upon, I believe, and that is that tribulation is a part of this life as a Christian. Jesus said in John 16, 33, 
These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. And then the Apostle Paul backs up those words of Jesus in Acts 14.22. He said there, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. There are six other references that say the same thing. I'm not going to read them all to you today, but can you relate? Put your hand up if you believe that you've experienced some form of tribulation in your life, some distress or some kind of suffering or oppression or persecution just because you're a Christian. Folks, look around. Look at how many hands are in the air. So it's pretty obvious tribulation is a part of life. But specific to the end times, the Bible says this. First, Jesus' own words. This is Matthew 24, verse 9 and verse 21. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. Two different times in that passage, Jesus said the same thing to reiterate. There is going to be tribulation. But here's the question. Who is the you? But you will be delivered up for tribulation. Who's that talking about? And I want you to understand this. One of the reasons why we're taking some time on the front end before we go any further on in our study of the Revelation, your view, your belief on when the rapture takes place, whether it's before the tribulation or during or after the tribulation, your belief, your, your view, your opinion on that has great bearing on how you read and interpret the entire book. So I didn't feel like we could just jump right into this without taking some time to lay the groundwork of what the options are, let you make up your own mind, but to have you realize that whatever you believe about this has a lot to do with how you read the book. Okay, then uh, one of the 24 elders around the throne, they were speaking of the martyrs who would be killed for their faith. It says, and I said to him, speaking of one of the 24 elders, my Lord, you know, and he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. These 24 elders are talking about who are these people killed. And Jesus said, It's the martyrs. In this case, it's talking about the martyrs. So we'll talk touch more on that as we go along through the book. So today let's look at a pre-tribulationist view of these verses as well as their take on the great tribulation, okay? A pre-tribulationist believes the purpose of the Great Tribulation is twofold. First of all, they see it as being to conclude the time of the Gentiles, to wrap up the time or the age of the Gentiles on this earth. In Luke chapter 21, Jesus said in verses 23 and 24, Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are, who are nursing babes in these days. For there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people, and they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. They believe this is talking a little bit about God's dealing with the unsaved world, but they believe that the church is already raptured at this time. But the bigger purpose ties into this conclusion of the time of the Gentiles, and it is this. The ultimate bigger purpose of the Great Tribulation is to prepare for the restoration and the regathering of Israel 
to be saved and to reign with Christ during the millennial kingdom, during the thousand-year earthly reign of Jesus that Revelation chapter 20 talks about. This one is the bigger deal. This one's huge. Pre-tribulationists believe that there is a very huge difference and a wide gap between God's dealing with the church and God's dealing with Israel. Two very, very different plans on two totally different spheres dealing with two totally separate issues. I cannot emphasize strongly enough to you the pre-tribulationist view of, of God's plans and purposes being radically different, um, not totally disconnected, but in many ways um, disconnected from each other. They believe, pre-tribulation, pre-tribulationists believe that um, this is the time also when Old Testament prophecies concerning Israel that have not been fulfilled as of yet will be fulfilled. The temple will be rebuilt. The priestly order will be revived. Sacrifices, Old Testament sacrifices, will be reinstituted. But the bottom line is this. The Great Tribulation is not something they believe the church will experience. The Gentile world will be here, and Israel and the Jews absolutely will go through this. But it has redemptive purpose. Again, in coming weeks, we'll look more at that. Today's just kind of an overview. So, a pre-tribulationist belief, real quickly again, is the church will be raptured out of the world before the Great Tribulation, before that seven-year period. And they believe 1 Thessalonians 4, 16-18 talks about that. They also believe that the rapture will be sudden. 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 says, For you yourself know full well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So there's a suddenness to this. They they believe in, in imminence, that Jesus could come at any moment and that he will come suddenly. They also believe in light of Jesus coming like a thief in the night, uh, we're cautioned and we're instructed to be on the alert. Matthew 24, 42. Therefore be on the alert, for you do not know which day our Lord is coming. That same idea reiterated in Matthew 25, 13. Be on the alert then. For you do not know the day nor the hour. Now, I absolutely believe we don't know the day or the hour. Scripture is clear on that. And I don't care if you're a pre-tribulationist, a mid-tribulationist, or a post-tribulationist. I think that this is great advice. We are to live ready. Live ready. Not live afraid, but live ready. You see, I make a big deal about not living afraid because I grew up in a church that used to teach that because Jesus is coming like a thief in the night... The whole point was that he was going to sneak up on us and that his goal was to catch us doing something we weren't supposed to do. Um, I mean, I was taught as a kid that if I went to the movie theater, that while I was there, that would probably be the time that Jesus would come again. And folks, I'm not talking about being in a movie theater seeing The Exorcist or some awful movie. I'm talking about Mary Poppins. And so it was just bred into me that we we were to live fearfully. We should not live afraid. But we should live ready. Because this coming again of Jesus is a great and glorious thing. Not something to be afraid of. Rather something to expect. And something to prepare for. In how we live our lives. For as, for as long as we're here. For however long that might be. Alright. Let's go back to 1 Thessalonians 4. I'm going to add a little more detail to a pre-tribulationist theology. I'm going to read the verses before. Verses 16 through 18 for you, and I'll read 16 and 18 again, but I want to start at verse 13 
of 1 Thessalonians 4. It says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. Now, that word asleep literally means dead. It's talking about people who had died. They were just as intrigued and concerned and confused about the end times as many of us are today. So, Paul wanted to put their minds at ease and help them understand uh, what was going to happen. We don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, those who are dead, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, those who have died, with faith in Jesus. For we say this to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So, it's obvious. Who's first? The believers who are already dead will be resurrected first. That doesn't mean, or that doesn't have any qualifier on it. Whether they died 5,000 years ago with faith, 500 years ago, 5 years ago, or 5 minutes before Jesus comes again. Those are the first ones to be resurrected. And then it goes on to say, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up, there's that word, raptured, caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, here's a really important point. Pre-tribulationists see a gap between the rapture and the second coming in terms of the chain of events. They think there are two stages to Christ's coming. First of all, Jesus comes for the church. That's what 1 Thessalonians 4, that's what we just read, is all about. He raptures us out. They, they, the dead are raised, and then those who are still alive will be raptured out. And all this is prior to that great tribulation that's going to last for seven years. And then after the seven years are over, Jesus comes back with the church. We find his second coming talked about in Revelation 19. So, before the great tribulation, he comes for the church to rescue us. And then after the seven years are over, he comes back with the church at his second coming. A pre-tribulationist believes that during these seven years of waiting, um, Christians, this is the time that Christians will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, I'm not sure exactly when, and I've tried to find out, but I can't find out exactly when, and maybe they don't know when, when during that seven years this will happen, but they believe that's when it will happen. The judgment seat of Christ is something mentioned in three different places in Scripture. I want to read the one for you from first, excuse me, Second Corinthians chapter five, verse ten. It says there, Paul writes, "For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed or repaid for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad." This is not a salvation issue, folks. Not at all. If your name is written in the book of life because you have confessed with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believed in your heart, God raised him from the dead, the scripture says you will be saved. This is a rewards issue. The judgment seat of Christ is all about Christians receiving rewards based on their deeds, based on what they have done in this life. And so I heard someone say this once, and I think it's a decent analogy. Um, 
your passport is already stamped. When you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, your passport has already been stamped. Entrance into heaven is guaranteed. The judgment seat of Christ just refers to how much luggage you'll be able to bring for your journey and for your time there. Not a great analogy, but I think it works a bit. Here's another major theological point. A pre-tribulationist believes in three resurrections. Okay? At the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4 that we've read, the dead in Christ are resurrected at that point in time. Those who are still alive undergo some kind of transformation to receive their glorified bodies, uh, much like Jesus had after he was resurrected. So the first one is the rapture at 1 Thessalonians 4. The second one is at his return. Revelation 19.10 talks about that. And that's a time when those Jews and Gentiles who came to faith during that seven years of tribulation, those who died, will be resurrected then. But then also at the end of the millennial reign, after the thousand years that um, Revelation 20 talks about, unbelievers will be resurrected at the great white throne of judgment. So those are the three. At the rapture, when Jesus comes back to take the church out before the tribulation, when he does come again, those who came to faith during those seven years, and then at the end of his millennial reign, the unbelievers will be resurrected also and stand before what's called the great white throne judgment in Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. Now, there's a couple difficult, I call them difficult scriptures, um, that pre-tribulationists have to deal with. Um, Jesus said this specifically about the tribulation in Matthew 24, 22, unless those days, and he's talking about those days of the tribulation, unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. The same thing is reiterated in uh, Mark 13, 20. Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, whom he chooses, he shortened the days. When asked, well, that sounds like the church will be here. That sounds like Christians will be here during this difficult time. A pre-tribulationist would say, no, no, the elect refer very specifically to Israel, not to the church. And one of their supporting verses is Revelation 7, verse 4 and verse 14. Verse 4 says, And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. I said to them, My Lord, you know. And he said, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. A pre-tribulation rapture person believes that this is referring to the elect, refers to the, the sons of Israel, the tribe of, of the tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel, and the 144,000 that will be saved during that point in time. These are the ones that come out of the Great Tribulation. Some believe they're the martyrs, not just Jews. Um, but to a pre-tribulationist, it's not martyred Christians, it's martyred Jews. Okay? Um, as far as our fate, the outcome of a believer, a saint who's in Christ, they place much, much emphasis on two scriptures written to Christians, again, uh, in the book of Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Then in, earlier in the book, in the first chapter, the ninth and 10th verses, 
and, and this is talking about it. It says, for they themselves, and that's uh, other people in churches outside of the church at Thessalonica, shared their story about the church at Thessalonica. So that's who the they themselves. It's other churches, other people. They themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you, Thessalonians, turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. So they, they believe that uh, as far as a believer is concerned, we are raptured out of here because we are not destined to be a part of the wrath. And they see the wrath and the great tribulation as one and the same thing. Uh, that's one of the things I see a little bit differently, but we'll talk about that in, in weeks ahead. The final major theological point that a pre-tribulationist believes is something that the Bible refers to as the blessed hope. They believe that the blessed hope is the rapture of the church before the great tribulation, before things get bad. This blessed hope is referred to both in Titus chapter 2 and in 1 John chapter 3. I want to read those two scriptures for you. Titus chapter 2 says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. In 1 John 3, verses 2 and 3, it says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope, this blessed hope, fixed on Him, purifies himself just as He is pure. Their thinking goes along these lines. If we are saved by grace and we are kept by grace throughout this life, what would be the point of putting us through this great tribulation? It seems like grace would somehow be removed from us if we had to go through those kinds of great, great difficulty. Well, we'll talk in weeks ahead as to whether or not there might be another meaning for the blessed hope beyond just uh, the church being gone uh, being raptured before the great tribulation. I want to finish today with this. Do you ever hear the saying, one side of the story sounds true until you hear the other side? That actually is taken from Proverbs 18.17. It doesn't exactly say that, but it connotes that idea. One side of the story sounds true until you hear the other side. Uh, Eugene Peterson, in his uh, version of the Bible called The Message, says um, Proverbs 18.17 this way. The first speech in a court case is always convincing until the cross-examination starts. I like that. The first speech in a court case is always convincing until the cross-examination starts. Now, this is not a court case, and I'm not a judge or a cross-examiner by any means. I'm, I'm not doing that. But there is another side to this. Do you want to hear the other side? You want to know what I think? Well, then you're just going to have to come back and find out. We'll be talking about that in the coming weeks. As we finish off today, I just want to uh, challenge you to think about a couple things. Number one, are you ready? And are you living ready? Not living in fear and not living um, 
in some 100% perfection state. Wonderful if you're there, but that's not the criteria for whether or not you're going to get to heaven or not. But are you striving to live ready? To stay close to Jesus, to let Him bring about the changes in our lives that He wants to make. I can't encourage you strongly enough that these days in which we live, it's so important to stay close to Jesus, to take time to be with Him and to be in His Word and to continue to let Him rub off on you, to take away those imperfections and to deal with the sin that we still wrestle with. Live ready. My second question is, how many of you have loved ones that are not ready, that you're praying for? We've carved out a few minutes here at the end, and so I want to encourage you to take a few minutes, and if you've got your own personal readiness issues you need to pray about and deal with, by all means, please do that. But equally as important, more important, pray for those loved ones who you know are not ready. And you can do that alone. You can do that in little groups, whoever you want. We've got about five minutes to do that, so let's do it.